Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about Redemption, you can go to redemptionseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. All right. Well, welcome to Redemption. Again, my name's Alex, one of the pastors here. I'm honestly super uh, just grateful to be sharing the gospel with you uh, this morning. If you're new here and uh, if you're a Christian, welcome. Welcome to worship. Uh, if, if you're not a Christian and you might be investigating the Christian faith like Mary was just talking about, welcome to you. Redemption's a place where you can belong before you ever believe what we do believe about the Lord Jesus. And so just glad you're all here uh, today, and if you are investigating the Christian faith, as you just heard read, you picked a good day uh, to do so uh, because we're hitting really the, the most famous passage in the Bible. It's in end zones. Uh, it's spray painted over overpasses, at least where I grew up in Woodstock, Georgia. John 3.16. We're going we're gonna to get into John 3.16, the really, the, the bullseye of, of the Gospels. So, um, First point is God is the missionary. That is, God is both the sender and the one who is sent. So as Drew mentioned a few minutes ago, we're looking at the missionary nature, heart, character, and actions of God over the next couple of weeks. So if you grew up in church, or maybe you didn't grow up in church, but if you, when the word missions, mission, missionary comes to mind, what actually comes to your mind? For most of us, I'd, I'd be willing to bet we tend to think, when you hear the word mission, you might tend to think, all right, so that involves um, raising money, getting on an airplane, heading somewhere, perhaps to like a foreign country to dig wells, build schools, orphanages, Bible in hand, there to serve a foreign people with the gospel and to meet tangible needs, medical care and so on. That is, and, and that is what missionaries do. At least that's a good part of it. However, throughout church history, I'll just mention one thing quickly and we'll get right into the scripture. Throughout church history, the word, the words, the Latin phrase, missio dei, the mission of God, was not primarily used until around the 15, 1600s in, in reference to missionaries like what I just described, but rather it was used by St. Augustine. He was the first Christian to actually coin that term, missio dei in Latin, mission of God in the fourth century. And what it had to do was this. It had to do with the inner Trinitarian, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they, they have a mission in the world to reconcile all things to himself. So it begins with God, the Trinity. It does not begin. Missions is not what the church does for God or in response to God, but rather mission is what the church does with God in obedience to God in cooperation with the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit to accomplish God's work in the world. That is, mission is not something we do for, but we do with God. Does that make sense? That's how early Christians all through the centuries thought primarily about missions. Like, why is that important to know that it begins with the Trinity? Here's why. Because all good theology begins not with man, not with the church, not down here. It all begins with the Trinity. Your trajectory matters. So we begin with 
God in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who creates, not out of necessity, but out of desire. That all creation is here, not because God was bored or lonely or needed something to do, but creation itself exists because of this relationship that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have together a perfect, harmonious, agape, God-love relationship overflows in creativity and creation of all things. So Christians who meet Jesus, who get his heart for his world, begin to participate with what God is doing in the world. And so when we talk about mission, we begin not with ourselves, but with God. And this is so incredible. Listen, to become a Christian or to, 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 to walk with Christ and to evangelize the world, meaning to share the good news, this is amazing that God would actually invite any of us into this. Like just let that sink in for just a moment. God spoke the world into being. Jesus raised the dead with a word, cured the sick, walked on water, on and on. God could ring the dinner bell right now and the elect would come running. His children would just come running. He could just say the word and they all come running instantly, immediately. But rather, what has God done? Over time, God decided to engage humanity in such a way as to invite us into what he's doing and to participate with him in the reconciliation of all things. Can you get your mind around that? For, I, I, of course you can't. No, we can't. This will be why we're in eternity forever, scratching our heads going, how in the world did he befriend us? And oh my gosh, he actually invited us participate with him in what he's doing in the world. It's so, so great. So there's a lot of things we could say about God sending Jesus. I'll read you maybe a dozen things that God sent Jesus to do. Um, God sent Jesus, like even in the, in the gospel of John, this is why this is impossible to try to exhaust in a day or even a lifetime, truly. Just in the gospel of John alone, Jesus is referenced to being sent by God over 50 times. Largest gospel, 50 references. It's kind of the big theme of the largest gospel. So we couldn't get to the bottom of that today if we tried. But here's just a few things that God sent Jesus to do. Teach the ignorant, to drive out demons, to raise the dead, to heal the sick, to proclaim justice, to establish the kingdom of God, to find the lost, to destroy the work of Satan and demons and death, to, per, uh, to live the perfect sinless life, to fulfill the law of God, to, to actually embody every Old Testament type and typology that shows up. Jesus actually embodies it. Jesus is the highest priest. Jesus is the greatest prophet. Jesus is the most glorious king, right? This is what Jesus has come to do do, yes, and amen, and yet scripture gets very clear in John 3 about precisely what he came to accomplish in the reconciliation of humans to God forever and to secure that relationship. When Jesus was named, the angel told Jesus' father, well, father, you know, um, Joseph, he go, the angel goes to Joseph and says, you'll name him Jesus in Matthew 1, 21. What's he say? You'll name him Jesus for he will what? He will save his people from their sins. I love that. This is his name. Here's his job description. This is precisely what he's going to do. You'll name him Jesus, which means God is savior. Call him that because that's literally what he's going to do. He will save his people from 
their sins. All right, so let's do it. Who in here knows John 3.16 by heart, by the way? Uh, yeah, okay, it's just, just about unanimous. All right. For God so loved the world. Let's do it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. I became a Christian uh, in, in April of 1996. Um, so that was forever ago. <laughs> um, but I became a Christian in April of 1996 when I heard a band quote this verse. And I was standing there next to my friend Mikey, who had just become a Christian. And uh, they just quoted John 3.16. And I'd grown up in the church. And then, wham. I don't know what it was, but I, I, I looked over at Mikey. I was like, oh, my gosh, did you hear that? He was like, yeah, dude. <laughs> I was like, you, oh, my gosh. He's like, yeah. It's called the gospel, man. You know this. You're born in the church together. Like, been in church since we were toddlers together. Like, is this the first time you heard that? Have you slept all 16 years so far of your life? I don't know what it was. Well, now I know. Uh, seminary told me it was the Holy Spirit came down and regenerated me, took the word of God, and made it come alive in my heart. I'm like, oh my gosh, I believe this. So I, anyway, John 3, 16 I wish I had a more like wowzer testimony, but it was somebody quoted John 3.16 and I believed it. And that's a pretty great one. Anyway, so I, I, it's great. I love this one. All right. So the context though of John 3.16 is so important. And if you don't know the context of, of where this verse comes from, you might, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't work. You need to know where it comes from. So what's the context? Well, in John chapter three, there's a man named Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews, comes to Jesus. He's a, uh, the quintessential Pharisee of the Pharisees, which means he was well-versed in the law of God, extremely devo- devout to God. So he seeks God with all his heart. He's very influential, very powerful, very intelligent, very well-versed in the scriptures. He's a ruler of the Jews, which means he's about as powerful as he can become. He goes to Jesus at night, which I can't go into all why he would go into Jesus at night, but if you just do a study on the light and the dark in John's gospel, there's, pretty, there's some interesting things. Anyway, goes to Jesus at night, has a conversation, and begins to say things like, Jesus, uh, God is clearly with you because no one can do the stuff that you're doing, essentially is what he says. Jesus, Jesus jukes him right away, out of the gate, like the first Jesus juke was from Jesus, jukes him and says, right, no one can go to heaven unless they're born again. And he's like, what are you talking about? And they start having this conversation. And Nicodemus says, what did he say? Jesus starts going, well, you gotta be born of the water and the spirit. And Nicodemus is just scratching his head going, I got a PhD from the Hebrew University. I don't have a clue what you're talking about. In verse 11 or so, Jesus says, hold on, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? You've got your Old Testament memorized and you don't know what I mean by the phrase born again? And he's going, I don't know what it means to be born again or born from above. I didn't catch that part. What are you talking about? Then Jesus goes, well, let me, let me, let me help you. He leans into this Old Testament story found in Numbers chapter 20, 21. And in John three fourteen, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man must be lifted up. Okay, so now Nicodemus knows that story really, really well. 
In Numbers 21, the people of God are in the wilderness. They're grumbling, they're complaining. They're grumbling against both God and Moses. Moses makes it very clear. They were grumbling against me too, not just the Lord, which is funny. But they're grumbling against God and Moses, and God judges them. He sends what uh, Moses records as fiery serpents, these snakes, seraph snakes, amongst the camp, amongst the people, out in the wilderness. If you're bitten by a serpent, you will die, and you'll die quickly. The people begin to cry out to God, God have mercy, God have mercy, God have mercy. Moses goes before the Lord, you gotta have mercy on your people. I know they're bad, but you gotta, you gotta let up. You gotta have some grace on these people. What can we do? Yahweh responds and says, here's what I want you to do. Make a snake that looks like those snakes, a bronze snake, set it up on a pole. And whoever comes to see this snake after they've been bitten by one of these living snakes in the camp, if they come see the snake that I have ordained, the one that I have lifted up, the one that my remedy will be for the person to exercise faith in what I have given and provided here. And if they see the snake, they'll live. And it worked. Jesus referenced that story and says, when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man must be lifted up. And, and that would have been the moment where Nicodemus takes this huge gulp and begins to tremble, truly. This would have been a moment. Uh, Jews don't use that word, son of man, lightly. Nicodemus would have known in Daniel chapter 7, if you read it later, Daniel 7, I, I, I'll just read it. I got, I don't have time. Listen, Daniel chapter 7, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Look it up later. It's unbelievable. Daniel goes, when I, when, I, when I saw in the visions in the night clouds, I closed my eyes and I opened and I saw one like a son of man descending on the clouds, ruler, king of kings, lord of lords, and he has come to judge. He shall rule with equity. Read, read who Daniel is, or the son of man is. He begins to talk about the son of man. Jesus says, remember the, the snake on the pole, even so the son of man must be lifted up. Nicodemus is going, oh my gosh, the son of man is going to be a, some kind of sacrifice? And go study that word lifted up. It means crucified and glorified throughout John's gospel. It's unbelievable. Son of man must be lifted up. Now you can go to John 3, 3 16 or 15. Let me, let me just read this one real fast. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world. Okay, so you see what Jesus did? He took the Old Testament, he took that Old Testament story, that famous story, and leaned into it and said, oh man, yes, you've been seeing the previews. Here's the film. I'm leaning into that story completely. I'm gonna embody that. You're not just gonna hear a whisper from a prophet. You're gonna see it happen. Oh yeah, it's so good. Okay, so, for God so loved the world. So let's just walk it through. Let's do every word of this verse. For, there it is. So here's the, here's the purpose. Here's the purpose. Here's why. For, here's the reason. There's a reason why the Son of Man is on the earth. There's a reason why the Son of Man is being referenced to in John 3, 14. For, here's a reason. There's a purpose for the Son of God. For God. Who? God. Who is God in Seattle? For God. Who did Jesus have in mind when he said God? Is God the earth? Is God part of nature? Is God you? 
Is God me? Is God us? Is God sex? Is God pleasure? Is God some kind of experience? Is God, what is God? Who is God? Is God just this unknowable spirit or spirits or beings out there? Some, who's God? Here's how the Old Testament defines who God is. God is creator of heaven and earth. He is almighty. He has no origin, no date of birth, no expiration date. God precedes. The, the old theologian Aquinas used to say, I say, uh, the word I say, that God, God is uh, uh, the doctrine of aseity, meaning God, God proceeds only from himself. God only comes from himself. God, no one made God. No one created God. God. No one gave birth to God. No one thought up God. But God has always existed. Oh, wow. Okay. He is uncreated. He's transcendent in every way. In Isaiah 57, it says this, that God sits on the throne and he inhabits eternity. Like, I was born in a small farm town called Woodstock, Georgia. That's where I inhabited. And I didn't even make the house. I didn't pay rent there. My dad did. Okay, that's where I grew up. God inhabits eternity. Very different from Alex. (laughs) You're like, no kidding, dude. Um, God has no needs whatsoever. God is sufficient in and of himself. God looks on this world and doesn't think for a moment, if I only had blank, then I would be content. God is content in and of himself. Read Psalm 50. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. If I were thirsty, I wouldn't let you know about it. If I ever had a need, if a need were to arise in my life, I would never let an angel know. I wouldn't let anybody know. I don't have needs. I don't need anything. I'm I'm sufficient. I'm glorious in and of myself. This is who Jesus is talking about. Another way to say it is this, God has zero potential. Like, that's weird. God has no potential. God doesn't strive to become holy. He is holy. God will never increase in strength, in wisdom, in power, in glory, in knowledge. God will never strive to be everywhere at one time. He just is. God doesn't strive to be loving. He is love. God doesn't strive towards righteousness. He is righteous. God doesn't strive to be honorable. He is honor. God doesn't strive to tell the truth. He is the truth and honor. See, this is what Jesus is saying. For God, you gotta get, who is that in that verse? When Jesus says God, he's not talking about you or me or any other created being. The almighty, the eternal, the holy God. Does that make sense? Oh, that's so awesome. That's so awesome. This is who we're talking about. Wow. All right. So God, completely unmatched in every way, perfect, sovereign, glorious. Jesus' father, and I read it this week, Psalm 147, he determines the number of stars and calls them by name. Next time you get to go camping in eastern Washington, because we don't get to see the stars here in the city very often, so when you do, look up all by name, they're all his, and he calls them out by name, which means he owns them, that he was before them, that he's over them, that those all belong in the palm of his hand. These are my stars, these are my stars. The whole universe, he looks across and they're all mine, I got them all named. I know exactly where they belong. This this is so, wow, yeah, yeah. This God, the Father of the Lord Jesus, Look down on our world full of lying, cheating, stealing, 
lusting, greedy, pride, evil, all these things, and actually felt and did something. For God, so what? So, and you gotta read that, that the adverb, so, that's so, he's so loved the world. He so loved it. Don't skip that. It is not just God loved it. He so loved the world that he, he looks on this love, on this world and feels something burn within his gut for his creation. Can you believe that? God looks on this world in our sin, in our state, while we were sinners, right? God looks on this world and he so loved the world. Of all the emotions, of all the stuff that we deserve, what should God give us? Death, he promised that in Genesis. If you eat the tree, you will, right? Okay, he doesn't owe us grace. He doesn't owe us Jesus. He doesn't owe us the gospel, the Bible, the church, the promises, the kingdom of God, eternity with him, forgiveness of sin. He doesn't owe us anything. You know what he owes us? A judge owes criminals justice. The wages of sin is death. That's what we merited in our will, in our rebellion, in our shaking our fist going, it's not your way, it will be my way and I will do what I want when I want and I don't like your rules. In fact, I hate them, I'll do it this way. God owes us judgment. And the Bible makes that abundantly clear. (laughs) Like, I know, I read it. Right. And yet God took the first step and moved toward us in love. Not Hallmark card love, not fickle, trite, cutesy love, but an undying covenantal faithfulness. He moved toward us at unbelievable cost to him. God so loved the world, this agape love, this love that existed within the Trinity, God now moves toward the world in our sin, not because God doesn't take sin seriously, because God doesn't smirk at sin the way we smirk at our new little Bernadoodle dog named Dempsey, because the other Dempsey retired, so we had to bring him out of retirement. Anyway, but like God doesn't smirk the way we smirk, like, ah, Dempsey, ah, he in the kitchen, got to clean that up. Uh, well, he's still really cute, so you know we'll keep him. God doesn't do that. Like that's not that's not God. He doesn't sweep our sin under a cosmic rug somewhere in the sky and go. Doesn't matter. I'm not really taking it seriously. No, God sees our sin for what it is and moved in big time with full knowledge of everything. God so loved the world. So love this world. I gotta, I gotta read this from Romans 3. I, there's no way I couldn't. Like, exactly what, what the world is. Listen, listen to how Paul describes the world. This world, the God, the God loves. There's no one righteous. No, not one. Not one prophet, not one priest, not one pastor. There's no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of the of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Like, unless you read yourself into that and own that, the gospel's just gonna sound like some other thing you're scrolling through in Twitter. 
Like you gotta read that part of the gospel message and own that part for yourself and put yourself in there and be overwhelmed of your need for Jesus. Like I did it on Friday. <laughs> There's no, to read yourself in there. Alex is not righteous, <laughs> never. Alex doesn't understand. Alex never sought God. Alex turned away. Alex became worthless. Alex did not do good. Alex's throat was an open grave. Alex's tongue lied and practiced deceit. Alex's mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Alex's feet were swift to shed blood. Alex's ways are marked with misery. Alex did not know the way of peace. There was no fear of God in Alex's eyes. And God so loved even Alex. And God so loves you. Not just that guy or girl next to you or someone else around the world or in Green Lake right now. God loves you. Right here in worship this morning. Mistakes, sins, and errors all intact. God loves you. All right. That's great. So God so loves the world. How much does he love the world? That. Here's what he did to demonstrate. That. That. That, that conjunction there. How much? Because he didn't just say it and he didn't write it in the sky and he didn't just send you a prophet to say, well, you know, in Hosea, God loves you. Isaiah, God loves you. Jeremiah, God loves you. Like we hear it all the time. And the time. God loves his people. God loves his people. God loves, God loves you. God didn't just send a message. He came as the sent messenger and the actual embodiment of the message. God loves you. How much? So much so that, 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 that he gave that God was involved. Read it. God gave his son, his only son, which harkens all the way back. Go read the Genesis 22 thing. Go read it, right? With Abraham called to sacrifice his only son. I know you've not withheld your only begotten son. That's not, that's not John happening to repeat that same verbiage there. That's on purpose. Just as Abraham lifted up Isaac to be sacrificed and God intervened and said, no, I'll, I'll, I've, I've got you covered here. This time, God gave his only begotten son, his one and only son, the one he's loved before time began, the one who was face to face with him, involved in creation. God looks at Jesus and says, I'll give my only begotten son, my only son, so that whoever, whoever, if you can hear my voice right now, you're a whoever, don't get, go, go get lost in like Romans chapter nine and start figuring out, well, what is whoever and what does that mean? And uh, like, don't go do that. Just listen to Jesus for a second. That whoever, whoever, whoever believes, whoever, the pagans, the not good enough, the overachievers, the guy with the 0.4 GPA and the girl with the 4.0 GPA at UW, whoever, the drunk, the addict, the divorced, the Fortune 500 CEOs, the line cooks over at Dixon Wallingford, the homeless kids on the Ave in UD, the Ingram High School football coach, 
the stay-at-home moms and dads, the software developers in Bellevue, creatives in Ballard, the weirdos in Fremont, the, <laughs> sorry if you're from Fremont, <laughs> but you probably own that anyway. It's fine. It, it all works out. The, the, the soccer moms in Northgate, the only, the really special people that are allowed in the Amazon spheres, all of them. Your Muslim neighbor across the street, the broken down, the sinners, the war vets, the school teachers, firefighters, police officers, the ones who don't have it all together, the ones whose marriage right now is on the rocks, the Greeks, the Gentiles, the Romans, South Africans, Germans, Latinos, Koreans, red, yellow, black, and white, precious in his sight, even the horrible sinners that took away our our supersonics in 2008. God so loves the whole world. God loves this whole world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, you gotta catch this word, believes, pistis, meaning to, to have not just a, a, an ascending of a, 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 like a moral or a mental consciousness, not just trying to comprehend a few dates, a few facts about Jesus. Like, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Like, of course, everybody believes in Jesus. 2018, who doesn't believe that Jesus was here? Like, of course. Like, not, not that. Not, I go to church every once in a while kind of, I, I, no, no, no. Whosoever believes in Jesus, not the person that just writes a check to charity at the end of the year. Not that guy. He said, whosoever believes, that is whoever has this, believes it believes in or it believes into, meaning to, to go. I have this, I have this amount of faith in Jesus. I believe in him in such a way that my lifestyle has to correspond to who he is and what this message means. Does that make sense? Whosoever believes, it's not, I'm not here playing games. I'm not here just memorizing a few facts and, and agreeing with a few things that I might see on the History Channel later this year. No, I believe, I believe, I have confidence in who he is and what he's done and who he says he is and all that. I believe whosoever, whosoever believes, not whosoever can do the most good works, not whosoever can give the most money, not whosoever has the most spiritual gifting and all that. No, no, no. Whosoever believes, and you know who can believe? anybody walking this earth right now. Thank God. Thank God you don't have to have your act together to be a Christian. Thank God you don't have to have your ducks in a row. Thank God you don't have to clean yourself up. Thank God that you're allowed to fall and skin your knees. Whosoever believes, if you believe with your, if you believe, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that, that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you'll be, what does Paul say? You'll be saved. That's it. That's all it's riding on is the grace of God and having faith in that grace of God. That's it. That's it. Whosoever believes who? In him. Whosoever believes in him, in Jesus, the way and the truth and the life. Whosoever believes in him and him alone looks to him and him alone, not some other religion, not some other teachers, not some other philosophy. Whoever believes in him should not, should not perish what does he mean, perish? It means eternal death, hell, damnation, separation, wrath of God, judicial wrath of God falls on your head outside of Christ. That's what scripture says. Should not perish. Whosoever believes does not perish. But, that conjunction, mark it, circle it. But, so what do we get if we do believe in him? Well, we have 
we receive eternal life. Not a morally, just a, a few moral ethical tweaks in this life right now. That's not what he's talking about. Eternal life is the life that God has. Like that agape love that's only within the Trinity, that eternal life, that's, what, that's who God is. Eternally alive. Fully alive in every way. In every way. Do you, can you get your mind around that for just a moment? That we, when we receive eternal life as our conversion, we are now fully alive with God and we will become even more so in the resurrection when Christ returns and judges the living and dead and receives us into glory. We receive fully eternal life in glorified bodies in which we don't get hungry, where we don't have tears, where we're not hungry, we're not lonely, we're without complete need at all, no threat of death, eternal life. Man, no wonder people are still talking about this 2,000 years later. This is unbelievable, and it's for everyone here. Whosoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. Now I'm going to get to the, the sermon uh, in John 3, 17, I'm just kidding. Now, that's the best known verse in the Bible and for good reason. And then here's the verse that gets omitted or overlooked more often than not. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So, I love this. So, so why did God send? There's the send, there's sent right there. Why did God send Jesus? I love how he answers. God did not send it in the negative. God did not. Here's what Jesus didn't come to do. Condemn the world. <laughs> oh, well, why not? Well, that would have been the most redundant thing in the history of the world. The world was already damned according to Genesis chapter three. It's been said for thousands of years ramping up to the giving of Jesus. Read your Old Testament. All the prophets, what are the? You're damned. <laughs> it's real clear. God is going to judge sin and sinners. God did not send his son to pronounce the condemnation of the world. And in case you're like, and, I, and look, I, I know this is a very contested thing, the wrath of God. I know, I know trust me, trust me, I'm, I'm aware. Um, Jesus makes it clear. And look at the end of John 3. If you just read the last verse, it says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What does that mean? Remains, I didn't do anything. No, we were born in hostility toward God. We were born under God's wrath, born under his judgment. We weren't born morally neutral. It's already on us. We're born into the world as enemies. We're born hostile in nature. Like, not me, not me. Well, the way the scriptures over and over again articulate what sin is, it's rebellion against God and his moral order. And if you've ever committed a moral wrong, then that wrath of God remains on you. You feel the urgency of why we need to know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? And we need to preach Jesus, talk Jesus, share Jesus over and over. So John three seventeen, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Thank you, God. But in order that the world, that the world might be saved through him. So God sends his son, the deployment of Jesus from heaven to earth. There was a design to that. And it was not more condemnation, but it was to fulfill the plan from before the foundation of the world that God's children would be reconciled to their heavenly father once and for all, forever. 
So hold on. We just said condemnation and wrath and all that stuff. Uh, where did that go? Where did the judgment of God go? Where did the justice go? Where does the, I thought the wages of sin was death. Was he bluffing? Where did all that judgment go? Jesus died for you. Not merely as an example, but as the gospels make abundantly clear, go read, go read 1 John chapter 2. Go read Hebrews chapter 2. Go read uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26. Go read these passages. And what do you'll see? This word propitiation. Where'd the wrath go? Jesus bore the wrath of God in your place for your sin. Like, well, what, what does that mean? That means that when God reached out to you to love you and adopt you and befriend you, he did not compromise his holiness in reconciling rebels to himself. That God's holy, just law was never mocked, but was completely fulfilled. The Bible makes it clear over and over again, God is holy, holy, holy. Does he stop being holy when he is, God is love? No, they're both slapped up next to each other in the death of Jesus. God is holy. And God is love. He is more holy than anything we could get our minds around, and he is certainly more loving than any of us have ever been or even experienced. God so loved the world that he sent his son not to condemn, but so that the world through him might be saved. And when Jesus was sent, he did it obediently. He did it with joy in his heart. He did it for the glory of his father and the eternal life of his people. That's at the heart of why God sent his son. So what happened to Nicodemus? <laughs> you ever wonder about that part? This is, well, go read the rest of John this week. You'll see him show up two more times. In John chapter seven, this conversation rocks Nicodemus in the dark. Later, one day, Nicodemus is out and some of his Pharisaical friends were trying Jesus. Read it, it's in John chapter seven. They're trying Jesus and they want to set up a false trial. Nicodemus goes, hold on, hold on, hold on. You, you can't do that to him. Nick, as, still as a Pharisee, he goes, hold on, that's not, that part's not right. Then, fast forward to the very end of the gospel of John, what do you see in John 19? I'll, I'll read it to you, you gotta hear this. This is, so, this is unbelievable. After Jesus is dead, hanging on his cross, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body away. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linens and cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And what happened to Nicodemus? The one who was ashamed to be seen with Jesus conversing in the middle of the night, 
was so unbelievably born again, born from above, that he confronted his friends, and then, in the moment of greatest shame and greatest risk to himself, to identify with this rebel Jesus, who had caused all this commotion, Nicodemus comes out in the middle of the day and says, let's take his body down and let's give Jesus the burial that he deserves as the son of God. And of course, we know what happens. Easter Sunday, Jesus is resurrected from the dead, conquering all of Nicodemus' shame and every one of us in here today. How great. So great. It's for every one of you and it's for all your friends and all your family and all your neighbors and all your coworkers that when God looks on you today, he looks on you in favor, with kindness and with a smile because he sees you as he sees his only son. You believe that? It's so awesome. If you're not a Christian and over the last few minutes you've been hearing the scriptures and you're thinking right now, I, something's happening. <laughs> I want to follow that Jesus. If you want to do that today, today's your day. Not tomorrow, not next week, or when you're, you know, 80 years old and have nothing else going on, and you're just like, I guess I should just read my Bible or something. But today, today is the day of salvation, and it's for you. If you want to meet Jesus, I want to talk to you. I really do. Why I'm here today. I've been praying for you today. And I'm going to go stand in the lobby right after I'm done. And if you want to meet Jesus, I want to introduce you. I really do. I completely, like, so, so hold on. You're out to, like, proselytize me? and I, Completely. Completely. Yes, I want you to meet Jesus. Unashamedly, I want you to know him. 